Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Good morning. Uh, morning, church. I'm Tim, uh, as you have heard. Uh, I've been on staff at the city for four years. It's strange to hear my voice like this. Uh, and maybe you've seen me leading worship, maybe you've seen me talking about prayer, talking about Alpha. Uh, but today I'm really here to preach to you. Uh, I believe that God has put a word in my heart uh, for you, for all of us today. And, uh, and my prayer is that we will find encouragement in our discipleship to Jesus this morning. Uh, honestly, as I was reflecting, uh, I'm just really moved by, by, by God's faithfulness and His goodness to me. That I can stand in front of you and, and bring a word uh, really is, is very special to me. You know, I, I've pretty much like, quite literally grown up in this, uh, in this church and in this community. Uh, some of you know me since I was uh, 13 and I went by T2. But I have since rebranded and it is going well. <clears throat> so... I think I am prime team now. Okay, it's, uh, it's very special to me that I, that I get to share with you, my church family. Um, and you know, even like in the running out in the week, like the amount of people who have texted me and like prayed for me and all these things, like I really feel like safe. I really feel like uh, just so empowered to even like be before you and to speak today. So thank you for that. And uh, I really hope that we'll be blessed together today. So I'm humbled and I'm excited and let's get into it. Now we've been on a series uh, in First Peter, and uh, Pastor Janice and Pastor Andre have brought us through the first few chapters uh, where we talked about a living hope that we are chosen, we are exiles, we've been given an identity and a call to be a holy people. And last week, uh, Pastor Janice talked, uh, brought an excellent message on marriage uh, and how we are called to live in holy submission to God's ultimate authority. And so our passage today is First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. And let's dive into the Word together this morning. Now, uh, I'm just going to read it, and then you can read along with me. I'm not going to do the back and forth thing. Uh, yep, just read along with me, and really posture yourself and lean into the Scriptures, uh, and let God, allow God to speak to you even through the Scriptures this morning. So verse 13, it says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Amen. Now, I'm sure we are familiar with, uh, with this passage, especially that verse in verse 15 and what it talks about. And so friends, today I want to talk to you about the subject of evangelism. And my title of the message today is A Peculiar Hope. How to live a compelling life for the gospel. But before we go into that, let's, let's allow me to pray. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is to bring your word today. Lord, I thank you, God, that just for your goodness and your faithfulness over all of us. Lord, I pray, would you hide me behind your cross? Lord, I pray that uh, the fruit that is to come of, of this gathering today, Lord, won't be based off of my, my effort or my, or my smarts, God, but will be based on the power of your Holy Spirit. 
So I ask for you, Holy Spirit, to move to be tangible and present, God, to everyone who is hearing this message, wherever they are at, Lord. I ask, would you fill their rooms? Would you fill their hearts? And I ask, God, would you give us a fresh vision, Lord, of your kingdom, of your gospel? Would you fill us with the knowledge of your will, with wisdom and understanding? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to start by uh, just sharing a personal story with you. Um, how many of you watched the Tokyo Olympics a couple of weeks ago? Good stuff. Uh, now a new sport that was introduced this year was a sport of uh, sport climbing. Yeah. Climbers, anyone? Anyone? Just Mike. Exos at the back. All right. Uh, and I recently picked up. Uh, there's me climbing. I recently picked up climbing uh, about 11 months ago, and uh, so. Know this about me, right? I grew up being like a bookworm, and then like you know, in secondary school, you have to choose like you either play soccer or like you do other stuff. I was the other stuff, you know. So I got like became like sensitive music guy. I learned guitar, guitar, not to Hong Sabo. Huh? Anyway, um, and so picking up a sport <laughs> allow me to collect myself. Picking up a sport has been eye-opening, like on a number of levels. Uh, and one thing I've noticed is this constant struggle that I face, right? Every time I can't perform according to the way I want to. Uh, maybe some of you who do like different sports and that kind of thing can relate. Um, and I think it really hard. So when I can't send a problem, that's lingo, because I know lingo. It's lingo for like, when you can't make it up the wall, uh, basically. Um, and when I can't do that, right, I go down this spiral, man. I like sit there, then I'm like, then I'm like frustrated at myself. And then I'll go down this spiral, like, oh man, I'm supposed to be like really awesome at this. Like, ah, I'm supposed to kill it. Why can't I do it? Uh, I guess maybe climbing is not just for me. And I, just, I guess I should like give up on it altogether. It is awful to feel bad at something, right? Uh, or, and, I, and I go to this bothering gym with, with uh, this group of guys and um, friends, and, and we all know, like, at this gym, you don't go on a weeknight. So you can go on a weekday, you can go wherever, but you don't go on a weeknight. Because on a weeknight, all the people there are, like, here. They're all, like, they power and they fly here, fly there. And, and so if you go, you'll get really discouraged. But I did, because, you know, I thought, like, mm, I think I'm pretty good at this. So I went on a weeknight, and wow. I tell you, yeah, <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't fun. <laughs> you know, like they were like using the roots that I like working on to like warm up, and then it's just like, yeah. Have you ever felt just really like completely inadequate, insecure, and then questioning your self worth on multiple levels? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I will go to a wall there. I'll like, you know, I want to try it out. Then somebody else will like want to go to the same wall there. I'll be like, oh, no, 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 yeah, uh, no, I, I need rest. I'm just resting. <laughs> yeah, I spent two hours. Resting lah, <laughs> and it's yeah. So it's awful to feel bad at something, and many a times when we do, we knowingly or unknowingly, we end up creating excuses. We end up putting it off, or we form, you know, we 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 put off all future attempts of doing it altogether. Now, why do I share this struggle with you? Uh, I think in many ways, for a lot of us, this kind of captures the sentiments that we feel towards evangelism as a modern church. The same way that I shrink back from climbing because I feel bad at it, maybe that's the same way that you today feel about evangelism. When you hear the word, maybe there's a bit of like a, uh, you're triggered a bit. Uh. You have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction uh, when you hear that word. And I think, you know, we, a lot of us do have that reaction. You know, we think of handing out flyers, we think of like really uncomfortable, awkward conversations. Uh, we, we think of that, the anxiety, right, of that feeling like, oh, I'm imposing my beliefs on someone. And they don't actually really want to hear me, but like, oh, why am I doing this? Because my cell leader told me to. Uh. In, yeah, basically, when we hear evangelism, we go like, Ugh. But I want you to know, if that is what you feel, 
you're not alone, alright? And it doesn't mean that you're like a horrible Christian, it doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. Get this, alright? In, uh, in 2019, there was a study by the Barna Group in, uh, in, in the US of about 2,000 people. And, for, and yeah, get this, this is like staggering, right? 47% of millennial Christians said that evangelism isn't only uncomfortable, it's wrong. Just let it sit in. In our generation, 50% say that evangelism is something that's morally wrong. It's wrong that it's wrong to share your faith with someone in hopes that they will receive the same faith. In their survey, uh, in another question, 40% believe that to disagree with someone is to judge them. Simply to disagree with someone is to pronounce judgment on them and to impose that kind of like legalism on them. And in another study, they found that 60% of Christian millennials believe that people today are way more likely to get offended when you were to sh- if you were to share your faith with them. Anybody share any of these sentiments before? I, I, I certainly do. And I think you know, a lot of us can at least relate to these kind of sentiments, right? And so the question that it leads us is, how have we come here? As a church and as a society, how have we grown into this place where we are so uncomfortable about this thing? And the question next is, can we capture, can we recapture a vision for evangelism in our times? I think to get anywhere about this, we must first recognize our cultural moment and the impact and the effects that it has on us. We live in a pluralistic society. Big word, pluralistic society basically means, in short, everyone is entitled to their personal truth, their subjective take on the world. I'm sure you heard it before, right? Your truth, my truth. Uh, and what is right, what is wrong, and what it looks like to flourish. And we all have our own takes on that. And nobody can question that, because it's mine. This has been expressed in our cultural mantra of you, do you, whatever makes you happy, who am I to judge? As long as there's no measurable harm done to someone else, then yeah, who am I to judge? Tolerance is our highest value today. To suggest anything else that challenges someone's views, someone's feelings, or someone's preferences, is to be aggressive, oppressive, and to be arrogantly imposing. And we see this in many places, we see this in many forms. We see the emergence of cancel culture, where saying anything that's deemed insensitive to any people group can get you boycotted, get you condemned, make you lose your job at a moment's notice. And so in light of all these things, we don't know how to reconcile our faith, let alone the preaching and the propagating of our faith in such a hyper-sanitized, uptight kind of environment. Anybody feel that way? And so our usual response, uh, and this is from Richard Niebuhr's book, uh, Christ and Culture, is we take maybe one of a couple of responses, right? The first is a Christ against cultural approach. So we shrink away from making any claims, making any kind of stances and saying anything at all because you can't get cancelled if you don't say anything. Big brain. Or we take a Christ of cultural approach where instead of uh, you know, having views that challenge others and instead of having that friction, we just adopt all the views that are around. We change our minds on issues like sin. We change our minds on things so that we can be best friends with the world. And the third is a Christ above cultural approach where we separate the church and the world as two separate things and we huddle together in our little holy little get together and like this is good, that is bad. But is there a better way that we can go about this? I think another thing that we have to examine is the theology that we've been handed about evangelism. Put shortly, why do we evangelize? Now, I've seen this in my own life, you know, I, I, you know growing up in a very like, charismatic, like, 
let's get it kind of environment, uh, going to conference after conference, stadium after stadium. I know I've brought a bunch of people to church over the years. When I was in secondary school, there's one part I brought like 20 plus. Or like, this is not, yeah, this is, this is a weird flex. <laughs> I brought like 20 plus people all from all my school to church. Then like, oh, I come like one party all. And then like, you know, got a pat on the back. I said, look, good job, man. Uh, I've heard people say the prayer. I've seen them raise their hand and things like that. But I've never understood why I did it. I never had a strong why, a strong conviction for what I was doing. I thought perhaps, you know, this is just what a good Christian is supposed to do. And if I don't do it, then I'm definitely a bad Christian. Or maybe it's that, you know, we, and don't get me wrong about this, but you know, is that they're going to go hell if I don't do anything, right? So what kind of monster will I be if I don't reach out? And we let that kind of guilt fuel our evangelism and fuel our efforts. All this to say, you know, I, I, I think there's truth in like these different things, but they failed to inculcate within me a deep and a resilient conviction for why I should evangelize. And that's our theology of evangelism. Lastly, I think an area we have to examine is the methodology that we have ran with. Now, over the past 50 years, society has evolved, but has our methodology of reaching people changed or have we remained the same? In the 50s and 60s, society was largely religious. It's not uncommon for someone to have a religion, to have a faith, to be of a different faith, and that's the backdrop. In, in the 70s and 80s, as society got more educated, then you know, people began to think more, they began to be like, you know, why? Why Christianity? Why Jesus? Why not this other faith? Why not these other things? And today we find ourselves in this place where it's even more crazy, it's even more whack. And it doesn't even come, it doesn't come to mind for people. Like the idea of God in your life, the idea of having a faith is maybe not even an option for some. And there are a thousand different worldviews that you can subscribe to today. Flying spaghetti monster, anyone? Perhaps it's the way that we have traditionally done evangelism amidst these changes that has left us feeling this way. We hold an event, we get a prayer, we count the number of decisions, and I'm not downplaying these things, okay? Hell, I was saved in the same way. Get it? Hell, because... Maybe, maybe an overemphasis on such mediums has oriented us towards a kind of result-focused, event-based, programmatic kind of evangelism. And we feel lousy when we, you know, after wrecking our brains, coming out with what's the best way, what's the best, what's the best free thing I can give us, all these things, and we don't see the kind of returns, returns, right? And so all these things, our cultural moment, the theology we've been handed, and the methodology that we have ran with has brought us to this place uh, where we feel, you know, if I'm to be real, a little disingenuous. I feel sometimes I treat people like numbers when it comes to evangelism. I feel sometimes I'm not even sure if I'm doing things, if what I'm doing is right. And when I do it, am I doing it the right way? Many a time, I am terrified to step out. And even when I do, I feel like I'm trying to sell a product that I don't really believe in. Now, I'm going to allude to like sales a bunch. Like If you do sales, like insurance, property, or whatever, like, hey, more power to you, all right? It's a good thing. <laughs> My dad is a property agent, so I have a right. Okay. <laughs> I think this leaves us at the billion-dollar question this morning, right? In light of all these things, can we have a vision for evangelism? If the four Gospels end with Jesus commanding us to make disciples of all nations, then how can we approach evangelism in a way that feels maybe natural, in a way that we have a sureness and a conviction in doing so?
I believe the answer to that is yes. And that as we read this passage uh, in Peter, that he gives us a vision for evangelism and lays these questions to rest. So we're going to dive right back into that scripture. All doing good so far? Great stuff. Okay, so back to 1 Peter chapter 13 to chapter 3, verse 13 to 16. <laughs> now the context of this is uh, in the verses right before Peter, after speaking on Christian behavior, submission to masters, husbands and wives and all that, he has pushed this kind of otherworldly submission, this notion, right, to an even higher level where he talks about suffering. And he calls us to this because we are different from others. We have a different hope. We have a different way to deal with the issues of life uh, because of what? because of the hope that we have in Christ. In verse 13 and 14, uh, Peter asks a rhetorical question to his, to his uh, addressees. He says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now these addressees are like, pretty similar to us. They live in a culture, they live in a, in, in a place where the culture is in opposition to them. They are different. They are kind of weird when you compare them to all the worldviews that are around them. Kind of like what we, we, we talked about in, in, in a moment earlier about our cultural moment. They live a distinct way of life with a distinct ethic, a distinct worldview, and one which would attract ostracism at times. Persecution, or at the very, very least, was questionable. Now, it's important to note that the, the suffering uh, mentioned in this verse is suffering for righteousness, right? So it's suffering for doing good, for walking faithfully with Jesus where he wants you to be. So it doesn't refer to like you go around, you pick up fights with people, you get into arguments and then you go like, oh my gosh, hashtag blessed. Noah, okay. And after this, this is where Peter sheds light uh, on, on this idea of how are we to relate to unbelievers? How are we to interact with them? And that's the context of verse 15, which we're going to stay on, right? But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to Everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now the first line there, uh, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, is actually a reference to a passage uh, in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 8, uh, verses 12 and 13. I think I have that. Uh, and that verse says, you know, do not say a conspiracy concerning all uh, that these people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And so there's kind of a bit of a rephrase there uh, where it says, you know, the law of hosts, him you shall hallow. Uh, that's the rephrase where it says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In the context of that passage the, uh, in Isaiah, is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah bring a word to King Ahaz uh, of Judah when Israel uh, banded with the king of Assyria and is against him. And the premise here and the main idea is that we are called to live lives which honor the Lord in our hearts and to set him apart, even in the face of opposition and even in the face of these things. Now, the second part of reverse instructs us to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks uh, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, the word uh, defense here is the word apologia in, in Greek, which is where we get the word uh, apologetics from. I'm sure you've heard this before. Uh, and it means uh, having a reason, having a rational explanation for something. It's used by Paul in Acts 22, where he, as he's judged by the Jews, he gives a defense for the gospel. And how he gives a defense for the gospel is he recounts his salvation and he talks about the mercy of God. And the second word I want to break down from this part is the word there that says anyone who asks. The word asks, right? And this one, like, wow, quite mind-blowing. I probably shouldn't sell it too high. Anyway. He says the word there, ask, is the Greek word, uh, aiteo, right? Which means ask or beg. 
and it's used in different places in the New Testament. And this word ask, right, the, the, the connotation that it has, right, isn't just like a casual inquiry, like, hey, uh, hey what's the weather? Uh? What's the date? Uh? It's not just like, hey, what's the time, uh, bro? It's, it's something that's more intense than that. In, the, in other places that it's used, it's used uh, for the blind man that was begging outside the temple uh, in Acts. That word beg is that word asks. It's used when Jesus talks about, you know, we are to ask, seek, and knock, and to give no rest. Uh, when we ask uh, God for things, it's that same word ask, there's that intensity of asking. It's almost as if there's a need, that I need to get an answer for you. It's not just, a, it's not just an inquiry, it's a demand. Uh, it's used when, when Jesus says, you know, uh, you are to lend to any, anyone who asks to borrow from you. There is a need in this kind of ask. It's not just a casual inquiry. And so uh, for the reason, for the hope that is in you, and now Peter makes mention of this hope once again, is the hope that we have in Christ as we are rooted uh, in eternity and not in the things around us. Uh, lastly, for verse 15, he says to do this in meekness and in fear, uh, which in other translations says in gentleness and humility. And verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Uh, now I thought it was interesting that the word uh, conscience here is uh, sunidesis, which means, yes, like uh, moral conscience, self-awareness. But if you look at the root word of this word, it actually comes from this word, ados, which means your form and your outer appearance. So it's not just your internal, like, you know, what you think about things and, and all, but it actually just, it has something that translates how you live your life. The outer appearance that people see matters when you deal with unbelievers. So this is it, friends. I think we've just read it. The answer to our question, can we recapture a vision for evangelism in the midst of our cultural moment and in our time? I, I believe that Peter gives us a vision for that right here. And that vision is this. When we live compelling lives for Jesus, the people around us will demand an explanation for the peculiar hope that is within us. That explanation is the gospel. Our friends, our family, people with real struggles, real pain, when they look at this otherworldly hope that you have, the way you make decisions, the way that you live your life is so different, it's so strange. I want to know why. And if you look at that word, it's not just, yeah, it would be nice if you told me why, it's I need to know why. They will ask about it, they will crave for it. It's not just, you know, we, we talk about like fishing a lot. Miles talked about uh, the idea of like, you know, us being a fisherman. It's not, this, this idea of evangelism isn't just like, uh, I'm just going to cast a lone rod and just like, oh, hope for something to get hooked, man but it's the way we live our life almost being a net. A net that we extend to everyone around us. And so this is the vision that I believe that Peter gives us for evangelism. And I think the question that we, that we naturally come to next is, well then, what does a compelling life look like? What does it mean to live a compelling life that would draw people to the gospel? Uh, I just have three kind of points about living a compelling life for you. Uh, and the first of this is, a compelling life is one that is a life submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Now the verse in, uh, in verse 15, the first part says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now the word, uh, in, in some uh, translations, it says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Now the word sanctify here is the word hagiazo, uh, which means to consecrate things for God, to separate the profane things from the things that are set apart from God. And the word that comes next, uh, the Lord, right? It's not the normal one, it's not uh, referring to Yahweh, but it's referring to this idea of a master, it's the idea of, uh, it's the word Kyrios, which is uh, the one who holds the authority of decision-making. I'm not sure if that's clicking in your head now. But it means that when we sanctify the Lord God in, in, in our hearts, we give to Him our lives. We say, you are the one that is responsible in the decision-making. I'm going to relinquish my control 
I'm going to relinquish that right that I want to hold on to, to hold tightly to my decisions. I'm going to sanctify you as the Lord in my heart. Is God on the throne of our hearts today and our life choices? What are we living for? What are the indicators of success today that we subscribe to? Is it money? Is it stability? Is it fulfillment? Is it even practicality? That when we make decisions, we're like, mm, is it practical? But you know, you need to think of the practicality. I'm not, you know, practicality is important, but is it obedience to Christ and following his voice and his leadership in every season? I have a quote by uh, Rich Velodas. He's a pastor of uh, New Life Fellowship in the States. And he says this about the way that we live our lives. It's possible to have a life that doesn't appear fruitful to the world, but is faithful to God. This is the foolishness of the cross. The cross looks like failure, but it's the greatest act of faithfulness, which has led to incalculable fruitfulness. Are we living lives, just, just lives that can look fruitful to the world? according to the world's measures, or are we living lives that are faithful to Jesus? Because the truth is this, you can't, have a, you can't testify without a testimony. God calls us to be witnesses that are living under His leadership. In Acts, you know, He says, you will receive power and then you will be my witnesses to all the regions around us. And, and, and you know, all throughout the Bible, you see in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were a form of witnesses for God. They lived under His leadership where the other nations had earthly kings you know, they had direct access to the leadership of God. And they were supposed to model what it looks like for when a nation lives under God's leadership, under, under a loving father. There was a key difference. The early discipleship, the, the, uh, sorry, uh, the early disciples bore witness to Jesus, even to the point of death. The word uh, bear witness actually comes from this word called uh, martureo, which means to affirm that one has seen or heard something. Not to like come up with a, really theoretical, really like knowledgeable and well-read-up defense. It just means to, I have seen and I have heard. I'm just telling you what I've seen and I've heard. And this word is where we get the word martyr from because the evidence for what they've seen they heard was their death. And they evidenced it even to the point of death. And so we have to ask ourselves, is there anything that we are bearing witness to in our lives? When is the last time you did something because God told you to do it? When is the last time you heard God tell you to do something? When is the last time you made a decision on something to follow the voice of God, even when it didn't make sense? And then you saw His faithfulness, and then you lived to tell the tale. You can't testify without a testimony. The next way that a life is compelling uh, is a life that is fully hopeful in Jesus. Uh, and so that, that second part of the verse, it says, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, what is that hope? What does it look like? Now, you know, uh, in, in, uh, you know, we've basically been like in and out of like lockdowns for like the better part of like two years. Um, and we all know and we all have ex experienced it, right, that these lockdowns kind of have like a, they can have a varying level of impact on our mental health, our emotional health. Uh, we experience things like isolation, things like anxiety. Uh, and I noticed something in my own life, right? Uh, every time we go into a lockdown, uh, I'll suddenly go, I, I find myself very naturally and almost instinctively just start to shop online a lot. <laughs> Anybody go on, like, on a shopping spree the moment like, lockdown came? No? Just me? Thanks, man. Um, I'll find myself making excuses. I, I, I'll create new like, needs for myself, right? So like, I'll like, you know, I think, I think I need a sling bag. Because like, backpacks, they're just too serious, man. 
I need to be like laid back and like informal and cool. It's true. I bought it already. <laughs> and then because I bought a smaller sling bag, then I'm like, I need a smaller bottle because my bottle doesn't fit my sling bag. <laughs> and then the bottle is like expensive. <sighs> what to do? What to do? It may seem harmless and it may seem like, ah, funny, funny, right? But I think to some degree, right, uh, I was maybe numbing certain emotions, certain anxieties, certain maybe pain that I feel uh, by just placating and, and, and distracting myself. And actually, I need to bring these kind of needs to Jesus. Um, Pastor Susie Silk from uh, Church of the City, New York, she had this litmus test if your hope is in Jesus, which I think is brilliant. The litmus test is this, what do you do when you're in the midst of hardship and suffering? How do you cope? What's the first thing that you turn to? Do you binge? Is it the itch of consumerism like it is for me? <laughs> Could it be coffee? Could it be alcohol? Could it be, uh, you know, you watch TV series, then like you binge the whole thing and then it ends and then you're in this like liminal space of existential anxiety and like, what do I do now? Oh, wow, I ain't got another series to watch. It can even be more, maybe more serious things, addictions like pornography, like self-harm, like chasing dysfunctional relationships. What's the first thing that you turn to in times of crisis when you experience hardship and suffering? You see, there are, there are, there are two things that we can turn to, really. You know, it, there's not a lot of options here. It's either our hope is in secularism or our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in Christ. Um, and a hope in secular, uh, in, and I just kind of compare the two, right? Do we turn to entertainment to numb our boredom? Or do we, are we content uh, in the will of God? Do we distract ourselves? Are we, numb, are we numbing our pain and our deep needs that are real and need to be met? Or are we finding healing and comfort that comes in Christ? Are we enslaved to addiction today? Or are we free to walk in obedience to God's call in our lives? Are we truly living in hope? Are we happy and contented living in the will of God? Uh, now, uh, Pastor John Tyson, uh, who's also from, from the Church of City in New York, he talks about hoping in secularism. Uh, and he says this. Now, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a wordy quote, but I think it's really good, right? So he says, Secular salvation is a gospel of false promises built around worldly versions of independence and success. This is the good news of self-fulfillment, success, power, wealth, sexuality, and autonomy. Secularism offers to save us from insignificance, loneliness, boredom, and meaninglessness. It offers a false vision of the future built upon an identity affirmed by the world, fleeting pleasures that don't last, and resources with the power to eliminate the problems that plague our personal lives. He goes on later to say, but now, since you know God, and he's quoting from Galatians here, now since you know God, or rather have been, become known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and bankrupt elemental forces? The salvation God offers us is about freedom and joy and not about slavery. He came to meet the deepest longings of our hearts that can only be satisfied and fulfilled by Him. And I think this tension is real. This tension is something that we see all around us today. Uh, if you look at all the suffering going on in the world, it just seems like it's bad news after bad news after bad news, both local and abroad. Uh, and really, like, the humor that I noticed today is all, like, jadedness and anxiety. Example of this here meme. <laughs> meme. Michael Scott. <laughs> Example, right, of, like, the kind of humor that is common today. Like, I do youth, right? 
And like, I think a lot of like the humor that we see, like even among like, uh, like, like their friends and all this kind of stuff, is just this very like jaded, tired idea of life. That this anxiety, these things that we are struggling with, is never gonna end. It's just gonna keep on coming. And then so we just learn to adapt by like, yeah, I'm dead inside. Ha 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 ha. It's funny. By the way, if you watch The Office, we can be friends. <laughs> and in this context of this hopelessness where we have placed our hopes in secularism and it hasn't worked out for most of us, Dallas Willard says this, there's not much happiness in the world, is there? If you are truly happy, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You can't hide that sort of thing. And people are going to say, it may take them a week, it may take them a year, but they are going to say, why are you happy? Friends, I believe that the honesty that we desire to have in our evangelism can only come when the good news is truly good to us where we have truly experienced the good news of Christ, the healing, the comfort, the liberty that it is to live in Christ Jesus. I, I think of um, like conversations that I have with, with, with a loved one of mine uh, who is not a believer. And then so we talk about a lot of things, uh, talk about career, talk about like savings, <laughs> and like, uh, all these like bunch of like practical stuff, right? And it's funny how even these practical things will, will, will kind of uh, point towards Jesus in my life at least. Like, well, how do I make decisions? Uh, are my decisions just rooted in practicality, stability, or am I like following the will of God? And, and these conversations have come to the point where, where, where that place where I, I have no choice but to explain that like, okay, so it's going to sound crazy and you can humor me, but like, I really believe in God and like, I believe that I, you know, the God of the universe, I kind of know him and so that kind of changes the whole game and I've, you know, come to that place in, in like multiple conversations where like, you know, there's no way out. I can't explain it in any other way other than to just say, this is what I've seen and this is what I've heard. Uh, and, th- and this same person, you know, talks to me about like existential anxiety, lacking purpose. You know, there are real, real needs and sufferings that the people around us are going through, which I believe, and I think we all should, that the gospel is really the answer to. You know, we were having prayer uh, for, for Alpha, right? Alpha, yes, Alpha. We were having prayer for Alpha, like just the Alpha, Alpha team. And then uh, Ivan said, like, you know, you know let's, let's pray, let's get a word from God for, for Alpha. And, 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 as I was, and as I was praying, I was just asked, I mean, I was like casual and like, oh God, what do you want to do, that kind of thing. And I, f- I felt this deep, deep grief within me. And this grief came from like, I believe it came from God. I believe it's like God's grief towards the many people around us who are suffering, who are in pain, who are going through things, who, and it's, it's breaking them apart. And as a church, our, our ears too preoccupied with other things. Our ears, you know, deaf to these cries. Are they silent to us? Have we been listening just too much to our own life, maybe? You know, or are we, you know, loving people, pouring into these relationships? Get finding out, you know, what is that? What are you struggling with? My brother, my sister, what are you struggling with? Because I think that Jesus is the answer to these things. So how often do people ask you about your hope? You know, they may not ask it outright. It may not sound like, hey, what's your hope? Ah? <laughs> but they might ask it in different ways. They might ask you, how do you find purpose in life? How, how is it that you're going through something that there's so much suffering? How are you going through that suffering with this kind of like joy, this kind of like uh, peace that you have. 
And another question, when was the last time that you had to talk to someone about Jesus? Because the questions just went in that direction and there's no other way that you can explain it. My last point uh, on a compelling life, yay, <laughs> almost through, <laughs> is how we respond uh, when these questions come. And I think that, uh, that that looks like a life of Christ-like gentleness. The last part of the verse where it says, do so, you know, answer these things with meekness and with fear. Or in some translations, it says with gentleness. Now, gentleness isn't a very, you know, kind of sought-after value in our culture today. I don't remember anyone going like, man, I just really want to be gentle. Uh, you know, it's often associated with like weakness, don't be soft, don't be a pushover, stand up for your rights. Uh, and I think that one reason we have this kind of like knee-jerk reaction, even to evangelism, is precisely because we have lacked gentleness. The way that we engage uh, people outside of the faith, the way that we, we just descend into kind of a venomous debate on right and wrong, your view, my view, your worldview, my worldview. And Christians have been maybe aptly recognized uh, many a time as being arrogant, self-righteous, or dismissive. But we are called to be gentle, and in doing so, we are following the example of Christ. Because Christ described himself as gentle. He said, follow me, for I am meek and I am lowly. Friends, even Christian apologetics is not an attempt to prove that we are right. It's the, the goal of apologetics is to help hurting people in their journey to answer existential questions. It's to help them along, to come alongside them, put an arm around them and say, like, hey, let's explore these things together. If you're right, you know, you can correct me. But I just want to explore this thing together with you. Uh, I think of, uh, this is a sad example. I'm going to preface it. Uh, I think of my friend who I invited to Alpha. And now, <laughs> I know it seems weird that I'm like saying, a, it's not a bad thing about Alpha, right? It's just, uh, it's something that maybe we didn't do right. And so I'm just being honest about it. Uh, so I invited my friend to Alpha. And then, uh, we, and then, you know, he was in the talks and we had, like, conversations. And then it just became this, like, uh, and we, you know, with the, with the people in that group, it became this, like, back and forth, really heady, really theoretical, uh, really defensive kind of argument, your view, my view, tit for tat. Um, and at the end of the thing, right, I, I walked my friend to the MRT and I asked, like, hey, so uh, how's your experience? <laughs> and he said, uh, you Christians have a really privileged, like, view and you're like very privileged with your, with your views. Uh, and then I never heard from him again. <laughs> I said, it's a sad example. <laughs> I think back and I think, you know, what could have been done better there? What could my friend maybe have been searching for as opposed to just write answers that are kind of thrown in his face? and like just mm, insist upon. Carl Jung, uh, psychologist, he says this, this is why modern man has heard enough about guilt and sin. He is sorely beset by his own bad conscience and wants rather to know how he is to reconcile himself with his own nature, how he is to love the enemy in his own heart, which is himself, and call the wolf his brother. I'm of the opinion that people know that they are broken. They know that they have chased things which ultimately don't sustain and don't provide a lasting peace. And they don't need us to rub it in their face. Sometimes we have it backwards. 
You know, we are not saved because we are right. We are made right because we have been saved. What does it even mean for us to be in that position and say, like, I'm right? This is what it means. It simply means that you have been made aware to the reality that God loves you. He gave His Son for you, and the Holy Spirit did that. He touched your heart in the word of the gospel, and you found yourself believing. There's nothing for us to boast in and to lord over people. It's available to all. Have we not received the forgiveness uh, and love in that measure in the most undeserving of ways? And Dallas Willard says this, uh, one of the things you lose when you engage in a defensive argument is your capacity to deal with people as precious, eternal, valuable souls, persons whom God has a wonderful plan for both now and for eternity. In our insecurity, even in our own beliefs, are we projecting? Are we being defensive? Are we being arguable? And in doing so, are we failing to love these precious, valuable people that God has called us to steward? Second, uh, in Second Timothy, Paul puts it this way, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive to do his will. Uh, I remember a quote by uh, Billy Graham, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember it word for word, but uh, it's God's job to save, the Holy Spirit's uh, job, sorry, it's God's job to judge, the Holy Spirit's job to convict, and it's my job to love. But yet I think of how we as Christians have come to be known, uh, in, especially in our time, as maybe racist, homophobic, judgmental, elitist in our pursuit of, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard this, having a steel backbone. And like, we need to stand against sin in the public sphere. It's like, daddy chill, right? <laughs> but honestly, all these things, it breaks my heart. Uh, I cannot but help but wonder if Jesus would act the same way. I cannot help but wonder because Jesus never reacted and behaved that way with unbelievers. There was a clear difference. To the Pharisees, yeah, he said, woe to you. And like, he was like really intense. But to the unbelievers, he, to the thirsty woman at the well, he offered a drink. To the woman caught in adultery, he rescued. To the sinners, he visited their homes and he drank and ate with them. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that we are to have an absolutely non-compromising stance towards sin in our discipleship and in our pursuit of holiness. But it's not as an attitude to people outside of Christ. There's a distinction. Sometimes we project the weight of living a holy life on people who have not received the very privileges that we enjoy. The immeasurable love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ and the empowerment of the Spirit. How can we expect people to be there without access to that? I believe the ministry of reconciliation uh, that, in, that, says, that talks about in 2 Corinthians 5 compels us as a church to be the most inclusive place on earth. And so with all that being said, church, can we do better? Can we be gentle towards our brothers and sisters uh, who are precious children of our Father even if they don't know it yet? Can we pursue them in patience and in love? 
Will we take the time? Will we be intentional in these relationships, in these conversations to be like Jesus to them? In closing, uh, and I can get the band uh, to go ahead and start setting up. You know, if I lost you throughout this whole sermon, uh, here's the TLDR, and here's the main points. We don't have to give up on evangelism in the face of our cultural moment and what we've been handed. Instead, Peter offers us a vision that we can recapture for evangelism. And that is that when we live compelling lives for Jesus and for the gospel, the people around us will demand an explanation for that peculiar hope that we cling to, that we carry, that transforms our lives. And how do we do that? It's by submitting our lives under God's leadership. It's to put our hope fully in Jesus in all ways uh, and it's to grow in our gentleness and our love for the people that are around us. Amen. Can we rise in space? You know, even as I was uh, reflecting and, and kind of praying uh, and looking on, on even like the content of this sermon and, and these ideas, right? Like submitting to God uh, and His leadership, putting our hope fully in Jesus, uh, growing in our gentleness uh, around Him. Um, I can't help but uh, recall and, and kind of be convicted that these things are only possible when we have a real relationship with Jesus. And I know you might be thinking, yeah, I've got a relationship with Jesus, I'm Christian. But I can tell you from experience that you can, you know, be Christian, do the Christian thing, but not really have a real relationship with Jesus. One that you know that He is, that you can trust Him in His leadership. You submit because you can trust Him, He's trustworthy. One that you know uh, that you can put your hope fully in Him because His goodness will see you through. One that you can grow in gentleness simply because you have felt His gentleness towards you. I'm just going to be honest, right? Even in the past, the past couple of years of my life, uh, I have lived, if I'm to be really sober about it, almost without a relationship with God. I've, you know, i work in church, I've done the, the, the Christian thing to like the highest level, right? Uh, but I've, I've seen things like my prayer life become just like me praying so I have like ammunition. I need to preach. I need to lead something. Okay, so I'll pray. And I've, and I've run into struggle after struggle, problem after problem, with no solution, with no hope, and just trudging along. And all these things changed when, you know, at the start, of, even the start of this very year, God just asked me, He just told me like, you know, in the light of all these things that you face, all the struggles, all these things that you can't solve, Tim, I just want to sit with you. I just want to sit with you. And that gentleness just like made me break down outside the MRT. And I, I found myself asking the question like, do I really have a relationship with Jesus? First, we talk about evangelism and wanting to reach people with this good news. Is this good news good news to us?
Do we have a wonder of the cross? Do we have a wonder of who Jesus is in our lives? And so, you know, if, if any of those things kind of make sense to you, right, if you struggle to trust uh, in God's leadership, if you struggle to trust in His goodness, and so you're turning to these other things, maybe you're trapped in sin and habitual sin today. If you struggle to be with being judgmental, uh, maybe, you ha- maybe you've kind of forgotten about the joy of your salvation this morning. And this morning, I just want to pray for all of us here, myself definitely included, and would you just uh, just put a hand on your heart even, even as we pray? And even as you do, just begin to bring these things to Jesus. Don't look to things that won't satisfy, things that will fade away again, but bring these things to Jesus. Lord, we just relinquish control. Lord, the things that we hold tightly to in this life, God, we give to you. Lord, we want our lives, God, to be defined not by the world, but by what you say about us and what you call us to. King Jesus, we want your leadership in our lives. We want your lordship. Lord, today I, I, we, we pray, God, that we would turn away, God, from broken systems from things we simply do not satisfy. Holy Spirit, would you come and fill our hearts afresh, fill our hearts anew, empower us, God, to live for you. Would you come and meet every need in our heart? Would you come and heal every brokenness, every lack, God? Would you come and comfort? And Lord, if we have forgotten, God, of what it means, Lord, to be a sinner saved by grace. Would you remind us of the joy of our salvation? Would you remind us, God, of the sorry and the helpless estate that that you found us in? That you have saved us by grace. That we stand here because of all that you have done in our lives. Just remind us of that today, Jesus. just uh, even just take this time to respond uh, 